Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 112, We Are the One, Plotinus's Participatory Metaphysics. In this episode, we want to explore the metaphysics of Plotinus a little bit, not from the vantage point of system builders, that is, people who are trying to pin down exactly what Plotinus thinks the universe is. And we're not entirely sure that that is a fully sound approach to Plotinus's thought. It, it's important, but it only gets you so far. Instead, we want to look at the ways in which the Plotinian self interacts with the Plotinian universe. We've entitled this episode, We Are the One, partly because this is the refrain from the Amoebic's song, The One, off their 2011 album, Sonic Mass. And that song is, we can say with no hesitation whatsoever, the single best exploration of late Platonist metaphysics to be found in the annals of punk rock, which you might think is not the best place to look for metaphysical commentary. For that, you probably want to check out the more spiritual end of hard bop. But anyway, more importantly, because this is maybe the really, really fascinating part of Plotinus's thought, not only that there are higher realities than this one that we're all used to, the one full of stuff you can bump into and time which goes in one direction, but that you can become these higher realities. No, let me rephrase that. You can realize that you are already, indeed eternally and ionically, those realities. Human identity for Plotinus goes all the way up but only in a certain sense, which Plotinus spends a lot of time refining and describing. But in the case of the higher transformations of the self, he never can define through words. You have to go there and see what he's talking about. A few notes before we get started. First of all, in the interests of highlighting a number of aspects of Plotinus's thought that rarely get much attention in scholarly literature, I shall be making a lot of statements in this episode which may rub certain specialists of Plotinus the wrong way. This is partly due to the limitations of the podcast format. There's simply no way to go into the material we're covering in an adequate way in under an hour. So corners have to be cut. And incidentally, this won't even be under an hour. This is this episode is as short as I could make it, but it's probably going to be quite a chunky one. The alternative is giving up on presenting Plotinus's phenomenology of higher realms of existence on the Schwepp, but we think it's worth presenting this material to a general audience, despite the inevitable drawbacks. We've also gone some way to addressing the many possible objections to the things we're going to say in the, in the notes to this episode. So, for example, I shall claim that Plotinus's noose, the higher mind or consciousness, which is the ultimate realm of being, in his thought, is numerically singular. We individual humans do not have our own noose. Now, this is a controversial claim. In fact, I know of no scholar who puts it in quite this way, which is why I'm using it as an example here. This is my reading of Plotinus. Look at the notes to this episode, however, and you will find the more normal viewpoint represented, as well as some quotes from Plotinus himself, which would seem to militate against my interpretation. So I'm being a bit of a freak, but I'm also trying to be fair and point out where scholars would likely scoff at my freakishness. In aid of this, I've integrated the usual two bibliographies that each episode of the Schwepp has a bit more than usual. So we're giving Platinian primary passages for every major claim we're going to make in this episode, and we're appending to them where relevant secondary literature. 
A second preliminary point. This episode is meant to be a summary of how Plotinus thinks the human subject can interact with higher levels of reality, stroke, consciousness. For lovers of the apophatic, for lovers of transcendent states of consciousness, and for hardcore Platonism freaks more generally, this summary simply will not do. Therefore, we are devoting two special episodes to exploring these matters in more depth. One devoted to the life of the undescended self, the higher noetic aspect of the human individual, and one devoted to the encounter with the ultimate reality or non-reality of the one, alone with the alone. And with all that, on with the show. Now, Plotinus as a thinker presents an astonishing number of firsts, considering he was a philosopher who claimed most of the time to be offering absolutely nothing new, but only doing exegesis of a canonical tradition. He seems to have been the first thinker in Western history really to equate states of being with states of consciousness, or at least the first thinker to do it in the particular way he does it. Not only is noesis the same thing as being, a point Plotinus makes repeatedly, often quoting Parmenides of Elia, but the experiential corollary is also true. If you want to be pure being, actually to transform yourself from a being which becomes to a being which is eternally, you have a faculty, noesis, which performs this function by definition. So go ahead and become God by engaging in noesis. Plotinus is the first thinker on record to consider the fact that the human soul, functionally speaking, what we would nowadays call the human mind, is profoundly unaware of most of its contents at any given time. That is, Plotinus discovers or invents the unconscious mind. This will have huge implications for the discussions to follow, because it means, among many other things, that we can already be part of the higher realities of the universe, the noose and even the one without necessarily being aware of it. And, spoiler alert, that is in fact the case for Plotinus. The quest of philosophic ascent in Plotinus can be seen as a quest simply to realize we never really descended in the first place. He is also the first thinker to discuss a journey inward in literally those terms, that in order to explore reality, we need to go within ourselves. At least he's the first thinker I've come across and been able to locate who's, who puts it in this way. Obviously, with earlier literature like Marcus Aurelius's uh, meditations, we have the process of the self exploring the self, right? That's not new. Self-scrutiny is not new. But actually to talk about a journey inward seems to be a Platinian innovation. The world which appears to be outside the world which we see with our eyes and touch and smell and all the rest, is actually inside us, inside soul, and of course inside nous, which is soul's noetic archetype. And how do we access nous? We go inward. Again, this is hugely significant for how we might conceive of Plotinus's journey to the higher realms. When he speaks of the soul leaving the body, for example, he's not speaking, as we might kind of visualize, of a sort of ghost um, flying upwards out of the body, like in a near-death experience or something like that. Instead, he's speaking of the soul exploring her own depths, which are immense, and in the process, clearing away layer upon layer of 
mimesis, accidental quasi-reality, low-level bodily function type stuff, and penetrating into the inner human who is noetic. And of course, there's a layer or two waiting even beyond that. So in all of these firsts, Plotinus might come across as modern, or at least way ahead of his time, of positing an unconscious mind, for example. But of course, Plotinus does not have a modern worldview at all, at least not at the time of speaking, the early 21st century. What the modern worldview looks like at the end of this century is an open question, and maybe when people in the future are listening to this podcast, if podcasts are still being listened to, will say, good God, Plotinus really was prophet of modernity. Anyway, the journey inward for Plotinus is not a journey away from an objectively real, solid, dingen an sich sort of material reality, the real world out there that modern folks believe in so profoundly. Quite the opposite. The inward journey is a journey away from the unreality of the material realm of change and sensory impressions toward the heart of reality, the noetic, which is the grounding in being of the shifting movie that constitutes everyday discursive thinking, sensing, and existing. Let me repeat that in a different way. The journey inward is not a journey into a subjective reality. It is a journey into absolute objectivity, the absolute unchanging by definition truth. The ways in which the profound insights into human unconsciousness, our lack of a complete picture of what we are as a whole, play out in his philosophy are also profoundly alien to enlightenment ways of thinking. If by enlightenment ways of thinking we mean a kind of Lockean two-worlds scenario, with one world being our inner subjective consciousness and the other world being the real world out there where objective truth is held to be located, at least in theory, he's not doing something like that, something Lockean. He's doing something, as it were, the opposite of that. Anyway, we mention these Plotinian firsts not because they're firsts, although it is interesting to point out that Plotinus is ridiculously innovative despite his protestations to the contrary, which listeners to this podcast will not be surprised about because in some ways the story of Western esotericism is a story of creative misreading and so on and so forth. No, we mention them because they have profound implications for how his metaphysics work. We shall be discussing levels of reality and of being quite a bit in this episode, but being and knowing, or ontology and epistemology, while they're not exactly the same thing in Plotinus, are deeply and inextricably integrated with each other in Plotinus, I would argue anyway. So we need to get our heads around that. And it follows that it doesn't really make sense to discuss levels of reality without discussing how they are to be lived by the Plotinian philosopher. Plotinus's universe is a place where the human being can exist at every level, even the level of the one itself. A level of reality where it doesn't make sense to even speak of existing, since the one precedes being altogether, but okay, we don't have the vocabulary to talk about a non-existent form of existence, so we say exists as a shorthand. Plotinus makes the same kind of linguistic compromises. There are two more points I'd like to make before we begin with the metaphysics. One of them is another Plotinian first, a point on which Plotinus seemingly went against the whole Platonist tradition before him, but also after him. But before we get to that, 
a note on lumpers and splitters. So zealous listeners to the Schwepp will recall episode 43, where we talked with Professor Christopher Gill about Stoicism. Professor Gill cited an essay by Isaiah Berlin, wherein two types of thought were laid out, the thought of lumpers and splitters. Lumpers want to put everything together, while splitters want to analyze, make more and more distinctions, and generally divide reality up into parts. The Stoics, as the gentle listener will recall, were lumpers. Their divine pneuma is God, and is the logos, and is fire, and is in everything, and is the same thing as nature, and so forth. So Plato, on Gill's reading, is a splitter. By way of contrast, the form is separate from the individual body. The world of forms can be described as a kind of separate realm from the world of coming to be. Eternal truths are different from contingent truths, and so forth. Uh, Plato Socrates is always looking to refine and further refine definitions so as to exclude all possible ambiguities, leaving only the precise definition of one thing at the end of the process. He's into analysis. So we are talking about two intellectual tendencies or habits, right? Lumpers and splitters. It's not that the Stoics were incapable of making distinctions. It's just that they were happy positing realities with what might seem like an inordinate amount of different true descriptions. Thus, a splitter might say, how can God be the pneuma and the fire and also an informational matrix informing the universe and the architect of fate and nature and so on? Don't we need to posit several different entities to explain all this? The Stoic says, no, we don't. Now, here's the point. Plotinus, in my reading, is a lumper, not a splitter. He's emphatically a lumper. And this realization has really helped me make sense of his thoughts. So thank you, Professor Gill. So listeners should be prepared, in particular, for the immense amount of attributions that Plotinus makes to his noose. The noose, often translated as intellect, but we avoid this translation, and just say that there is really, really no adequate term of translation for this word in English, and that will become very clear in this episode if it wasn't already. Plotinus's noose is the highest god Okay, the one is sometimes described as God, but very rarely. It's the really when, you, when Plotinus talks about God in the singular, he's talking about the noose. Uh, the noose is a world containing absolutely everything which the lower cosmos contains, which our world contains, but without time or space or accidents. The noose is the noetic world, and it is our world, except without the temporary aspects of our world, and indeed without time at all. And... The noose is the world of forms, and we are there, all of us, eternally. Plus, noose is being, as we mentioned, since noose is identical with its act, noesis, and in the act of noesis is identical too with the object of noesis, the forms. So the noose is the forms, and its own act of contemplation of the forms, all of which action takes place outside of time and space, of course, is also the noose. Plus, noose is life. Oh, and noose is also, of course, a faculty of human consciousness, by which we can have unmediated access to truth itself. This unmediated thing refers to the fact that the noose contemplates not only his own contents, I say his because he's grammatically um, masculine in, in Greek, 
contemplates not only his own contents, which are themselves coextensive with him, so the forms are the noose, and they're also kind of can be described within the noose, so he has noesis only of himself, and in the act of noesis, the agent, the noon, the object of noesis, noeton or noema, and the act of noesis, all of these three things are one thing. There is no subject-object dichotomy for the noose, nor even a subject plus an action taken by that subject. Noesis is truth doing itself. But doesn't that mean that if we exercise noesis for Plotinus, we too are self-contemplating noes, subject, object, and act of contemplation all being a single eternal unity? Uh, Yes, gentle listener, it does mean that. But doesn't that mean that we are the noose? Yes, gentle listener, you're catching on. But you said that noose is like the supreme God, universal being, and life, and all that stuff. Does that mean that we, yes, gentle listener, it does, in a way. You see why I say he's a lumper. Now, there is only one universe for Plotinus. It is a lumper universe with internal structure, but without really internal divisions in the sense of actual levels of reality with hard borders between them. The noose is distinct from the one, and the one and noose are distinct from soul, but they're kind of a continuum without hard borders differentiating them. This is my reading, for full disclosure. Many readers of Plotinus will take issue with me here, emphasizing correctly that Plotinus states on numerous occasions that, for example, the one is distinct from the noose. I'm not denying this. I'm just arguing that Plotinus draws the boundaries between these realities in a way which kind of subjects them to quasi-sorities paradoxes. We know that the noose must stop at some point, and then the one must begin logically at the next point, as it were. But our problem is pointing to that point and saying, it's here. To take a material analogy, and Plotinus is quite fond of improper material analogies, so we're sort of in the Platinian tradition by doing this. We can definitely say that the Atlantic Ocean is distinct from the Pacific Ocean, right? But where exactly is the hard division between them? And don't they flow into each other? So a bit of water that's part of the Atlantic Ocean one minute is going to be part of the Pacific the next minute. And isn't the whole thing really one big body of water? So it's right to distinguish between them, but also right to acknowledge that they constitute one big thing. So this is the Platinian universe. It's one continuum. This, you see maybe why I think this lumpers and splitters thing is, is a useful way of understanding Plotinus. Now, going back a bit, what does it mean to say that we are all in noose? This brings us to Plotinus's doctrine of the undescended soul, as it is often called, which I think is better termed the undescended self. Why do I say this? It's clear that we are all always in the noose, or rather eternally, because always implies an infinite duration of time, but there is no time in the noose. It's never unambiguously clear, however, that we are souls in the noose. In fact, a real metaphysics nerd who knows her Platonism might ask, how can there be souls in the noose which is above the ontological level of soul? Listeners, please don't worry about this question. It's one for the metaphysics nerds. The doctrine of the undescended self is the other big Platinian innovation that I mentioned earlier that I wanted to discuss. 
the last of our firsts, as it were. Plotinus even acknowledges in the Enneads that this teaching of his is really his, and seemingly no one else held it in antiquity. Those interested in theurgy may already know this, but when we come to cover theurgic late Platonism, the thought of Iamblichus and Proclus in particular, we will find a really total and concerted rejection of Plotinus's position here. But it may also be that even Porphyry himself, who was Plotinus's student, didn't subscribe to this teaching. Plotinus may well have been a total one-off in this respect. But what does it mean to be an undescended self? Let's explore Plotinus's universe for a bit and see how this aspect of Plotinus's thought affects the way in which we humans are situated in the universe. We can illustrate the undescended self in a number of ways, but for a moment, let's start by looking at the descended self. So we humans find ourselves in bodies. Technically, this is wrong, as Plotinus makes clear on numerous occasions. In fact, we humans here in the cosmos are to be identified primarily with our souls, and bodies here in the cosmos are inside of soul rather than the other way around. So it makes sense in a way to speak of ensouled bodies rather than embodied souls. But Plotinus, who's notoriously sloppy with his terminology, often talks about the embodied soul. Incidentally, this looseness with terminology is perhaps itself a symptom of his lumberhood, because it's easy not to emphasize distinctions between realities when you think the realities are ultimately aspects of the same single reality. I hope that's clear. I think that is a way to make sense of the fact that Plotinus, although he knows perfectly well that the soul only exists within the cosmos, technically speaking, is happy to talk about the soul in noose from time to time, even though there probably can't really be a soul in noose. There has to be a higher reality of which the lower soul is a reflection, right? The idea that bodies are within soul is a doctrine which Plotinus gets from Plato's Timaeus, of course, but he explores it in a myriad of ways which make it deeply experiential, which is just as trippy as it sounds, but we won't have chance to get into it here. Nevertheless, as Plotinus discusses an awful lot, here we are seemingly looking out from a body on a world outside ourselves through these little watery blobs called eyes and touching stuff with our skin and so on and so forth. We're souls with bodies or sometimes using bodies as instruments, as he sometimes puts it, following Plato's Alcibiades. On this level of being and knowing, we humans are, of course, driven powerfully to believe in time, uh, the great and the small, red and blue, scary and pleasant, sexy and repulsive, a bunch of other stuff, which Plotinus thinks comes to us not through our souls or from the noose, but through our bodies. And ultimately, through the unreality of the matter, which is the part of our bodies that isn't form. It's thus not noetic, and thus it's a kind of realized lack of being. That's where all this stuff comes from. That's where all these distinctions come from. That's where these desires come from. There can be no lack of any kind at the noetic level, except lack of the ultimate unity, the one, which the noose, like everything else in the universe, eternally longs for, but back to the body. And incidentally, this kind of swooping upwards to dizzying metaphysical heights at the drop of a hat, which I've just done. I was talking about the body and physical passions and stuff like this, and suddenly I'm at the ultimate reality. This sort of swooping is utterly 
typical of Plotinus's style. So this isn't me wandering off topic. Well, it is, but it's an appropriate wandering off topic. So the body is feeding a bunch of info to the soul, stuff like I'm hungry or I desire sex. All of this information is unreliable and Plotinus expresses a puzzlement about it. So it's not that he denies that humans experience things this way when attached to the body. He even says that he does. So Plotinus's psychology, in the sense of theory about the soul, about the self, is deeply engaged with what it's like to be an embodied human. Some discussions of Platinian anthropology, psychology, would make you think he doesn't engage with this material at all, with this experiential uh, side of things at all, but he does in a way more than any Platonist from antiquity, except Plato himself, probably. But he has reasons, strong theoretical reasons, on the one hand, for knowing that the actual nature of the soul is not bodily, is in fact completely unaffected by the body. That is, Plotinus maintains the impassibility of the soul, to use the philosophical term. The soul cannot be affected by the body. It's impossible, right? That's already very, very puzzling. But yet the soul can somehow have these experiences of bodily stuff. But his reasons for puzzlement are not only theoretical. They are phenomenological or experiential as well. So here is maybe the most famous passage where Plotinus expresses his puzzlement about this seeming contradiction between what he knows to be his true nature and the phenomenology of bodily experience. Quote, Often, awaking to myself from the body and becoming separate from all other externals, going within myself, I have seen an extraordinarily marvelous beauty. Convinced then that this was by far the better portion, I actually lived the best life and was assimilated to the divine. Establishing myself in that, I came to the noetic reality above all others and established myself there. After this establishment in the divine, having descended from noose down to discursive reasoning, I'm baffled by how I have now come down and how my soul has ever come to be within the body when it has shown itself to be of such a nature by itself, even when in the body. So here we have the journey inward, away from the body. And notice how the body in the first sentence is one of the externals. So we might tend to identify with our bodies, but for Plotinus, the body is an external thing to be um, separated from, just like all the other external temporary stuff of the cosmos. Here we have the journey inward, which leads to the divine, to assimilation of Plotinus to the divine. Then, we note, Plotinus proceeds even higher to the highest noetic reality. So there's a kind of geography in the noetic realm in Plotinus, and it has a highest point, which he describes in all sorts of ways in different treatises. So we can ask a few questions here, such as, is this highest point of the noetic world maybe the same thing as the highest level of noetic perception or consciousness? Uh, I think that is probably right, since noose is its perceptual act. So how could they be different things? Um, however, that's a big argument. So we'll just put that out there for listeners who want to think about it. Is the human self still the individual soul or the individual self here at the highest point of noose? 
This is a more difficult one. The Enneads contain passages which would seem to argue that we keep our individuality in some way at all levels of reality. And his descent back into embodied being in this passage that we've just read might seem to support that, right? If he went to the news and saw this incredible beauty and was established in the highest level of the divine and then came back and said, whoa, what am I doing here? What's going on? Presumably he had to remain somehow himself in that whole process. But we could also posit, for example, a transformation from an individual to a universal God identity and then back to an individual. That seems also a plausible way of reading this. Other passages would seem to support this latter interpretation. To ascend to the highest point of noose, we have to become the noose. Now, this isn't simple to explain, but I think we can at least avoid a mistake which is rife across Platinian scholarship of arguing that each individual human being has their own noose, and then there's a universal noose that kind of contains all the little ones. This is wrong. It has to be wrong. Um, Considered numerically, there is only a single noose in Plotinus's universe, although it has internal structure, which include, among other things, human beings in noetic form. But it cannot be divided numerically into little noes, little nooses. There is only one noose numerically, and when we are being noetic, we have it. When we are not being noetic, we don't have it. That's when we descend into discursive consciousness, as mentioned in our passage. And we have to think different thoughts in temporal sequence. Boom. Of course, at Ennead 4.3, Plotinus does seem to say that we do each have an individual noose of our own, and nothing is ever, ever simple with this guy. Now, this phenomenology of noesis, and that's a, a fancy way of saying the experience of being noetic, this uh, experience that Plotinus is trying to describe in this famous bafflement passage, what it's like to be in the noose and separate from the body is some crazy stuff. And it is this experience, which is really what most of, quote, Plotinian mysticism, quote, is about. There is an idea out there that the encounter with the transcendent one good is the focus of Plotinus's mystical experience, so-called. But as Pierre Adot and others have pointed out, it's really the noose, the noetic existence, that is the subject of the vast majority of Plotinus's work on higher states of being and consciousness. This is a huge topic, which is why we've devoted a special episode to it. Let's mention here a few of the things Plotinus tells us about what this higher state of existence is like, because Plotinus is rich in that kind of detail, which is what we wish all the Platonists would give us, instead of a bunch of theory. First of all, this state is eternal. That is, it is not of infinite duration, but simply prior to duration, beyond time. So for Plotinus, eternity is not a theoretical construct. It is something you can experience, and he has experienced on numerous occasions. So while the passage we've just quoted might seem to make this encounter with reality a kind of temporary flash, which then passes, leaving us stuck in the body, it's really the other way around. We are always in the noose, though our embodied self is usually unaware of this in the case of most people, and it's the lower temporal discursive mind, which is sort of the home of the temporary identification with the noose, what Plotinus called in our passage establishment in the noetic reality, right? This is deification, assimilation to the divine. 
Here we are reminded of many of our Middle Platonist thinkers, but also of certain Hermetica, of Clement, and generally speaking, of the whole section of the religious milieu of the first century CE in which deification was a major goal or even the major goal. The identification with or assimilation to the divine noose, and here we must merge things again, is not in fact a journey to another world. It is the perception of this world shorn of all that which is temporary and extended. So this is another way in which we are already in the noose, right? How could we not be, since the visible cosmos is, in a fundamental sense, in the noose? Of course, this is an oversimplification. Plotinus tells us that the noose is, in a sense, everywhere, in a sense, nowhere, and in a sense, located outside the sphere of the fixed stars, in a very definite place, at least as regarded from an embodied perspective within the cosmos looking up. So you could actually point to the noose by pointing at the sky in a certain way. See Wilberding's excellent article cited in the notes of this episode for a good summary of the issues here. So, noesis is an eternal, divine, transformative state. How can it be both eternal and transformative? Uh... Truly, to answer that question, you probably have to go there yourself, gentle listener. But I wonder if there isn't some connection here with becoming the ion that is becoming eternity, the equally paradoxical goal of Corpus Hermeticum 11. At any rate, there is a noetic world, but it's really just the essence of our world. And that's it. It lies within us, or at least we get there by going within and we are already there, eternally. So there's a wonderful paradox of the journey simply consisting in recognizing that you've already arrived from the beginning of the universe, which has no beginning. Now, in case, in case we're in danger of putting all this in a way which makes people think they get it, or that we here at the Schwepp think we get it, um, we should add a few extra points to make things difficult. What kind of cognition is noesis? I mean, to ask, what's it like? We know what it is. We, we talked about some of the theory earlier. It's fundamentally a, a noose contemplating itself and being one with its own act of contemplation and with its own contents, which are the forms. That's what it is. But what's it like? This is a question which you won't find many historians of philosophy asking. But it is, in a way, the most interesting question we can ask, right? And best of all, Plotinus gives us some answers, which later theoreticians like Proclus will never do. What's it like? It's like a total synesthesia in which not only are all the senses mixed into a single sense, but the objects of sense are one with the act of sensing. It's like purified sense perception. Or rather, as Plotinus famously puts it, it is the real sense perception of which our sense perceptions down here, mediated through the physical organs, are shadows. Quote, our perceptions here are dim acts of noesis, and the acts of noesis there are clear perceptions. End of quote. Most often, in fact, he describes noesis in visual terms as an ultimate form of seeing. But how, you might ask, can there be perception, eisthesis, without objects of perception? I mean, do we see the forms in noose 
Is that what's going on here? Well, yes, we do seemingly, or we hyper see them or whatever the word, the right term is in the noetic world. We are like giant eyeballs, but eyeballs, which can see in every direction at the same time. And because everything there is transparent and luminous, we can see everything at the same time as well. That's what noetic seeing is like for Plotinus. But the forms aren't bodies. I mean, this is axiomatic, right? So you can't really see them. Yes, it is axiomatic. The forms are, of course, immaterial, unchanging, eternal realities. This is something Plato talks about a lot in which the later tradition has elaborated. And it's, it's not to be argued with. You do not say that the forms are bodies. However, as Plotinus makes clear in certain very interesting passages, we have bodies in the noose. We have noetic bodies. He doesn't pronounce exactly what they're like, though he suggests at one point that they may be spherical, but we have them. Of course, that would be a sphere without dimensions, but there you go. That's possible for him. And the things we perceive there in the noetic also may have bodies of a sort, a higher sort, because weirdest of all, there is a noetic matter. And for Plotinus, matter plus form equals body. So there are indeed noetic bodies of some kind, made up of noetic matter and forms. You can really look at the forms. In fact, you might be unaware of this fact, but you, gentle listener, are looking at the forms right now and always, always have been and will be eternally. Thus, while we are in a sense dealing with what can be termed higher levels of consciousness here, we're also really dealing with a world, not only a metaphorical world, but a kind of non-spatial place where you really are living. Yes, it's eternal and it's a realm of purest being, but it's also a place where you can walk around. Yes, you heard that right, gentle listener, walk around. It's great stuff. So great, in fact, that we're setting aside a special episode to discuss the life of the undescended self and what it might be like, where we shall also be able to answer the hordes of historians of philosophy who have now officially stopped taking us seriously because we dare to assert that Plotinus really means what he says when he says, walks noetically. And speaking of scholarship, let's look for a moment at how scholarship has coped with Plotinus's quote, mysticism of the noetic. First of all, there's a huge amount of debate about Plotinus's noose on the level of analytic philosophy and epistemological theory. Questions like, is noesis propositional in Plotinus? Does it make statements? And are there forms of individuals in Plotinus's noetic world? These kinds of questions can be traced through long arguments across many books and articles for about the last 100 years, before which time no one was really paying much attention to the late decadent thinker Plotinus. Indeed, Plotinus the mystic was for a long time used as a kind of debunking label. We don't need to take Plotty seriously as a philosopher since he's a mystic, and mysticism is a characteristic of the decline of classical civilization, the decadence of late antiquity, and so on. Cue the Dark Ages, a horrible time when people forgot how to think rationally. Now, the scholarly consensus has evolved such that if someone does call Plotinus a mystic nowadays, they will normally do so in the full understanding that this does not contradict his being a consummate rationalist and a good philosopher. And many even recognize the persistent truth that 
certain perfectly rational takes on reality will posit entities and experiences which transcend logical reasoning. That is, as Plotinus shows, it can be logical to believe that logic cannot comprehend the whole panoply of reality. We'll get to this in more detail when we discuss the discourse of the esoteric in Plotinus, which is mainly to do not with the rhetorics of hidden wisdom, as it is in many of our authors, but with the unsayable, the ineffable as self-hiding mystery, right? So a whole lot of Plotinus's reality, his universe, is a self-hiding mystery, which cannot be put into words. You can only see it for yourself. Incidentally, any modern hard-headed empiricists who doubt that it's true that logic can result perfectly logically in a worldview which draws hard borders around what can be dealt with by logic, that pursuing critical thinking about what reality is like might result in critical thinking, seeing its own limits and acknowledging that it cannot get past a certain point. These hard-headed rationalists may wish to consider quantum physical theory, which does away with such self-evident axioms of logical thought as the law of non-contradiction, and does so based on reasoning from evidence. In other words, reasoning in quantum physics stops being rational at a certain point, or you can say it calls for a higher rationality, which transcends the rational laws, through which it arrived at the conclusion that there is such a super-rational reality to be discussed in the first place, which is the same thing. Um, sorry about that. That is very much what Plotinus does. He likes to help us people who are stuck in a lower discursive world of consciousness, where we have to reason about cause and effect and all this sort of thing, to see at least dimly what lies beyond the horizon of that kind of consciousness. Scholarship on Plotinus's teaching about the noose has in a general way shied away from trying to account for the experiential side of what he's describing. And indeed, the category mysticism has been no help at all, because people will just say, oh, this bit belongs to Plotinus's mysticism, right? And then just kind of move on. And we can see why this is the case. If even Plotinus himself is so baffled by this world of experience, it's quite likely that any scholar will be baffled too, right? And so we're probably correct to bracket many aspects of his thought as something that is just not accessible to humanistic scholarship, being essentially a matter of experience. However, this isn't really permission for us to give up. And Plotinus himself says that you can use reasoning as a means of approach to the noetic ascent. If you check out Ennead 1.3 on dialectic, you find an absolutely programmatic recommendation for the essential nature of learning to reason, but also the fact that reasoning uh, dianoia, discursive thought, is a kind of ladder that once you've climbed it, you can kick it away because you're, you don't need it anymore, to some degree anyway. Now let's turn very briefly to mystical union with the one, in quotes. This is a realm in Plotinus's text, full to the brim with paradox and statements that break up under the strain Plotinus puts on the Greek language in attempting to encompass them. Now, Plotinus as a lumper makes the one the same thing as the good, and indeed sometimes throws in the beautiful itself. Thus, combining creatively the one of the first hypothesis of Plato's Parmenides, right, with the form of the good from Plato's Republic, 
which is now in Plotinus no longer a form, but something transcending form altogether. He's silently corrected Plato there. And occasionally throwing in the beautiful itself from the symposium, similarly shorn of any form. So this one good beautiful, which is an ultimate simplicity, yet can somehow have a bunch of names and attributes, nevertheless, this one good beautiful transcends anything we can say about it. It is totally unpredictable. See our discussions on apophasis and transcendence in episode 96 and the accompanying special episode for some preliminary remarks on dealing with this type of text. And see our upcoming episode on the Platinian esoteric for more on this. Plotinus is really, really serious about unsaying the one. We can't even call it the one or the good or anything at all. We can't even say it is. We can't even say it, in fact. (laughs) And when we call it the first or primary hypostasis, we even have to qualify this. The one has hypostasis or reality, but it isn't anything. It's beyond being. It's totally alone without any duality whatsoever, without even the possibility of duality, if you see what I mean. Crucially, the one is not only beyond our ability to reason about it through normal, everyday, discursive thought, it's beyond the power of noose to grasp as well. Now, how such a reality could be encountered is a really tough question, but it is nevertheless the case that Plotinus both makes this theoretically a possibility and kind of tries to describe what it's like. Both of these aspects of the question will be entered into in richer detail in the special episode on the encounter with the first. But here's a few theoretical basics. First of all, the one utterly transcends all attributes, which is precisely why it can be the cause of all attributes in other realities. There's really a lot to talk about here in terms of philosophical theory, which we won't get into, but we can say a few things. The one does this by giving rise to the noose. And the noose is in an eternal state of proodos and epistrophe, going out and turning back, whereby he himself, the noose, is generated. So it's the going out from the one and then turning back to the one in contemplation, which creates the noose as noose. And then become the world of forms appears in the noose, which thus generates our cosmos down here via soul. We summarized this metaphysical story in the last episode. And just keep in mind that none of this happens temporally. It's all eternal. So theoretically, in order to encounter the one directly, the human being would need to separate from the body and become his noetic true self. And we'll say his here because anthropos, human being, is masculine in Greek. But there's no reason to doubt that this process could be accessible to women as well as men. Uh, We cease to be our discursive body-attached selves. And we are established in the noose just like Plotinus described in our earlier quote. What happens then is clearly difficult to put into words, but Plotinus refers many times to the highest point in noose or the summit of noose that we discussed earlier, and also refers to a faculty of noose, which is able somehow to reach beyond the power of noesis and contemplate the one. So this contemplation, which the term used by Plotinus is theoria, being a spectator, looking, this looking, is something that kind of shouldn't be possible to a noose whose function is noesis, but which Plotinus says is absolutely possible and is in fact kind of 
what makes the universe exist. It's lower realities contemplating higher realities, which in turn generates further lower realities, which in turn contemplate the higher realities, and so on and so forth. How this works is never systematized, and Plotinus approaches it in a number of fascinating ways in the Enneads, in which the boundaries between ontology and epistemology are totally destroyed, and in which the boundaries between the noose and the one are at least made deeply difficult to draw, if not destroyed as well. My own reading is that this noose beyond noose, this function of noose which transcends noesis, must be the pre-noetic efflux, which we talked about last time. That is the initial primordial emanation of the one, right? But remember, the one doesn't emanate anything. This emanation from the one which exists prior to the noose and the forms and even being, yes, it's a pre-being being, um, this which then becomes the noose when the noose turns back to contemplate the one, I feel like that pre-noetic efflux must be the faculty of contemplating the one which transcends the nature of the noose. But anyway, if this is right, we need to identify with or become the eternal moment of the beginning of everything, the beginning of the universe. We need to become that in order to transcend the noose and encounter the one directly. But even if it's not right, if that isn't what Plotinus means, something deeply transcendent of all human and even noetic categories, modes of being and knowing and so forth, must occur to the human self at the summit of noose as the self reaches beyond the noetic to non-being itself, to the one. Then the self, if it is the self, can stand before the one eternally, but of course also temporarily from the perspective of the subsequent embodied self who sits there wondering what the hell just happened. Alone with the alone, as Plotinus says on several occasions, quoting Numenius or simply echoing Numenius. So that's one theoretical model, the model of ontological epistemological ascent, right? Um, a lot of really interesting work has been done on this. This is, um, this is sort of the highest goal for, for the Platinian philosopher. But there's other ways of describing this process. To approach the one, one must strip from the self all that which is not the one. In other words, this process of ascent can also be described in terms of a process of stripping off garments, taking away complexity, um, purification, purification, purification of the self until the self is nothing but an ultimate unity. How this differs from simply saying one must become the one is subtle, and it plays out in Plotinus's text, but this is the process of aphiresis, stripping off of everything, even the noetic from the self. We say the self here as though that is unproblematic, but clearly the self will have transformed utterly in this process, and so it's difficult, to say the least, to decide whether it can still be seen as the self anymore, right? When there's nothing left, literally nothing left, how can you say it's the self? Even in the noetic world, human identity is difficult to comprehend. And for those of you who are uh, finding this episode very difficult to follow, that's what I mean. <laughs> Since everything in the noose is coextensive with the noose, what does it mean to say you are yourself in the noose, right? But at the hypernoetic level, 
Beyond the noose, this question of identity just kind of ceases to make sense as a question. What is the identity of that which has ceased to have anything, including, of course, multiplicity of any kind, but also being, life, eternity, finite attributes of any sort? This is how you must become to stand in the non-presence of the one. And Plotinus has done that. Finally, there's a more reassuring side to the theoretical encounter with the one. And this is that the one is actually present in, in a way at every level of reality, even the lowest level of matter, which isn't reality at all. The one is in fact present through the fact of there being beings, being things, individual things in the first place. A human soul is one human soul, therefore, the one's bounding, defining, unifying action is present in that single soul. By virtue of the one, that soul is one soul. If it were not for the one, Plotinus tells us, a kind of inconceivable counterfactual thought experiment would give us a universe in which nothing partakes of unity in any way. The universe would just be a big mush, an onkos, a kind of uh, sludge. But I mean, it wouldn't even be a sludge, right? Because it couldn't even be one universe of sludge because that itself would have unity. It would just be a kind of inconceivable sludge. Indeed, it's the one's infinity which allows for finity, or rather, for things to be finite, to have borders, to have form, to have measure, as he puts it. So we're never cut off from the one. And this is what we might expect from a single reality with no spaces between the hypostases, right? The one is here now, in a sense, but of course, it remains transcendent. Now, what about the descriptions of what the encounter of the alone with the alone is like? We get that the one is, in a sense, already here with us, being the precondition of there being an us at all. But what about the Platinian philosopher who succeeds in stripping away everything, who moves beyond even the noetic realm in his quest for reality, for the basics? for the truth. What is that like? This is the same question as what is the one's life like? What is it like to be the one? Since to make contact with the one, one needs essentially to become one, a unity which transcends all multiplicity, including the multiplicity of subject and object of humans, higher self, however transformed it has become in the ascent and the one. This is why people talk about union with the one, right? All language breaks down here. Plotinus blows our minds completely. He keeps trying to do the impossible and describe what this is like. They are among the greatest passages of, well, I guess you got to call it mysticism, really, in the Western esoteric tradition. This is the real stuff, folks. We can't do it justice, but we shall try, devoting another special episode to Plotinus's accounts of the encounter with the one. And you know, Plotinus couldn't do it justice either, so to, we have a, a worthy predecessor in this attempting this impossible task of description. Expect paradox, apophasis, and no mystical experiences whatsoever, because how can there be an experience when there is nothing? Aside from the obvious half hour of silence, though, expect some analysis of the unparalleled poetics of transcendence which Plotinus accesses in trying to convey something of what this non-experience paradoxically is like. In the meantime, however, another question which historians of philosophy hardly ever ask is how did Plotinus achieve this ascent? 
this stripping from the soul of that which is not the one. And how did he teach his students to do it? Join us next time as we discuss Platinian spiritual practice with Dr. Mateusz Struzinski, a historian of philosophy, who is also a trained psychologist and experienced meditator, who has asked just that interesting question and come up with a number of intriguing answers. Until we get to Platinian spiritual practice, stay esoteric. And in the meantime, here's Amoebics. <laughs>